I always wish that if I could give my a book to my younger self, it would be this book because I know this is exactly what I was missing out on. Welcome back. This week we're going international. Our guest today is currently based in Malaysia and comes to us with a substantial career profile. She has worked in marketing, advertising, and communications for online magazines. She has also worked as the director of Boston University's Ad Lab and the National Assembly of Malaysian Students in America. She's recently published her first novel, House of Koi, so cool, so cool, to promote diversity in literature for young adults to see themselves represented. Her name is Lillian Lee. Welcome to Refocus, Lillian. How are you? Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's, I've been doing well. Very excited to join you guys. We're very excited to have you, Lillian. And uh, so you and I, we met a little back on story. I like to give it a little context of yeah. how these souls connect the people that we that we bring into the podcast. <laughs> so we were actually on the synchronized swim team together. And as soon as I learned you had published a novel at such a young age, I thought, wow, that is admirable enough to get on here to interview. So let's dive right <laughs> in, pun intended, into the House of Koi. so we both got the opportunity to read the book so well so well written it's just so captivating first of all congrats that's such an amazing accomplishment not only are you um a published author of course but um you're you've written such an amazing engaging and entertaining story with a powerful message for the world to read the novel like i said is beautifully written without going into much detail it's about a malaysian girl struggling with her identity i think we can all um relate to that to the struggles of identity especially as we grow older and especially those of us who have been part of different cultures and in the story she the malaysian girl is trying to reconnect with her home even though she has lived there her whole life in past interviews you've mentioned that it's not just a story it's a malaysian story what does this mean and and why did you feel the need to write the book well I think it's always been a dream to write a book. And then when the opportunity came, actually, I had this idea when I was in a BU creative writing class. And the way I wanted to stand out was, I think the only way I can stand out was my identity and my own experience that I know was different from the rest of the class. And so I knew I had to write something different to impress my professor and my colleagues. And so I wrote about my grandma. And actually, this first short story was a bit more of like a mystery. And then when I had the opportunity to make it into a book, I just expanded it into more of like a cute theme, young adult book that I wish I read when I was younger. So the reason I said uh, it's not just my story, it's a Malaysian story, it's because I, I think growing up, especially in Malaysia, we only have like international books. Uh, shipped in and so we don't have a lot of local literature and so I wrote this book because like in the perspective of a Malaysian writing to Malaysians to tell them that Malaysian stories are there and they should be heard and just to encourage more Malaysians to share their stories. 
Do you, on that note, do, who did you base the characters on? Mostly on your story you mentioned. Or do you see yourself in these stories that you portray in the book? Oh, yeah. That's, I think a lot of people ask me if uh, Mila, the main character, is me. And I think I want to say like, like maybe like 80%. She's like my younger self, like my, my younger ego when I was 13 around that age because I went through like a similar experience so this book is about um, this girl from a international American international school transferring to a local Malaysian school and my experience was the opposite I went from a local school to an American international school but I feel that there's that same jarring um, transformation and everything just change and new and so even though the experience of switch I knew I could still write about this like strange transition into identities mm, totally and I and I resonate with that so much um of juggling with mm -hmm. with two identities I'm a deep believer that you have to go outside of your circles and your personal life growing up and networks to fully understand yourself and And so your book portrays us so, so well in the opposing point of view that you don't necessarily have to leave to redefine yourself and recreate who you want to be further in life. So for me, growing up in Mexico slash Texas, I, I thought I understood my identity, but it wasn't until I left to go um, study, uh, pursue a higher education that I was able to fully comprehend yeah. it, to describe it and defend it and share it with others with confidence. So... A lot of us, we live in conformity mm. that everything that has to be accepted is the norm. So we never take a moment to redefine what makes us us and our values and our friendships and ourselves. So that's why I was like, this book is definitely, definitely along with what we talk about Refocus. Yeah, uh, Lillian, you mentioned something that I just want to touch on very quickly, just the gap for the gap in diverse literature, literature based in Asia, I think a lot of minority groups can relate to this, mm -hmm. yeah. where you have your own culture that you and your traditions that you practice at home, but sometimes it's overshadowed by mainstream uh, media and mainstream consumption of media. So now that you've written a book, um, you've probably become a role model for a lot of Malaysian young adults. So I'm wondering, as you were growing up, did you find that there was a lack of role models for yourself, for you to identify with? Such an interesting question. And I don't know why, no, no, it still, it still feels bizarre to think of myself like an author or even like a role model. <laughs> But thinking about role model, I don't know. I mean, I think when you grow up with all these like Western media, just the big media and not seeing yourself represented and then you just want to join in on this, like um, the mainstream. And so I think growing up, I read like, you know, Princess Diaries, for example, like that. I think Met Cabot or Princess Mia was like my role model. Like, wow, she goes to New York or wow, she's the princess of Genovia. I think, I think, yeah, that's why literature plays such a big role and like, especially in our younger selves and finding identity. So I always wish that if I could give my a book to my younger self, it would be this book because I know this is exactly what I was missing out on. 
Mm-hmm. No, totally. And that's such a good point of view. I mean, there's just such a big history that we don't want to go into it right now, right? Of just like Western culture influencing developing countries and yeah. et cetera. But you're totally right. And I agree because I see it also in myself. Things that I do now and wonder and ask myself, where do I get this from? Then it's like, I, I, I watch a movie that I watched when I was 10 and I'm like, whoa, I do that. Am I, do I do that because of this movie scene? And it's crazy how our brain just attaches, you know, when, when, when we're younger, yeah. we're, we're sponges. So we absorb what we watch. We absorb what we listen to. We absorb what we see. So it's like, we are little pieces and puzzle parts of the puzzle, the things that we grew up watching and listening to and observing. So I, I, I mean, mm-hmm. I wish I would have had more books as well and, and absorb more information that was relevant to my culture and to the person that I want to be now, but yeah. that I didn't have the means or resources to be who, when I was then. Yeah. And also want to add to that just a little bit, just the importance of having representation, such as um, the story in your book, because then there's a sense of confidence there. There's a sense of being able to see yourself and being able to see how much you can accomplish, but also seeing that other people are sharing your same experience. That's so, so amazing. You are in your early 20s. How does it feel to be a published author at such a young age? I've always thought when you become like an author, when you accomplish this big goal, you you feel like transformed or changed. But I still feel, you know, like myself, writing this book at at my age now, it's, I guess I feel more confident in myself knowing that now that I've accomplished this, I know that I can accomplish more. And I also know mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. really anyone can write a book. You, there's so many questions I want to ask, but I'll go in order. So first, what what I'm thinking, are you thinking of writing a second book? <laughs> some people asked if there would be a sequel and someone was like, oh, what if Mila goes to like you know, university in America? And I think that, that would be a cool story. But I also think it's too close to my personal life right now. So maybe. In the future, after I graduate, I'll probably think about it. But right now, I'm writing this um, fantasy book that's been in my head for a while. And I actually just finished it a week, a few days ago. No no news on when to publish yet. Still editing, still in the editing process. Yeah, which I imagine takes a lot of time around how long is the editing process for House of Koi. Yeah, and also with House of Koi, I had like, um, editors in this publishing program with me and so they had like a set timeline but now it's more like a bit more flexible so yeah yeah I love your use of the momentum you said first book published what's next let's do it I love that <laughs> Of the initiative too, right? Because it's I, it's not, I imagine you say anyone can write a book and I literally thought, I said, no, not me. <laughs> but you, <laughs> but you mentioned it so well that it does take time. So that it just, if it's what you love, you, you pursue that. Mm-hmm. So what, what was the, what was your favorite aspect of the entire process? And, and what was the biggest um, obstacle you had? What I loved the most about the process was the writing, just the like getting lost in the story because I wrote this book when I was feeling homesick. So writing this book just made me like come back into this world and 
remember all the little slangs and the food that I miss. And then after I finished writing, um, the hardest part was getting the pre-orders. Because pre-orders is like a big, a big way on seeing whether you can be successful after when it's published. And with this publishing program that I was in, if you didn't have enough pre-orders, then my book wouldn't have been published. So I was very uh, stressed out about this. And I kept like being worried if I didn't have enough support, then all this work will, I don't know, disappear. So that's why looking back, I feel very uh, blessed to see that I, I do have the support I needed, like that I shouldn't have been shy or ashamed to reach out, just tell people like I wrote this book. And then there was just a lot of encouragement that I didn't, didn't expect. And so it was really nice to have the pre-orders, even though it was very stressful. Well, it's obviously been very well received uh, from readers. <laughs> and so if there's one thing that you want the readers to gain from this story and from the themes within the book, what would it be? So when I was writing this book, I was a bit torn between two audiences. I wasn't sure if I should write just for Malaysians or for like non-Malaysians. And so I tried to find a happy balance because for Malaysian readers, I wanted them to know that, you know, there is, um, I think like the word we've been using, momentum, like there's a, lo there's a diversity um, um, and local fiction coming up in the publishing world. And that I want them to feel inspired share their own Malaysian stories and know that we are heard. And for non-Malaysians, I want them to remember to keep an open mind that there's so much more of the world to learn about and they shouldn't, I think because the mainstream media is, I mean, obviously mostly from America. And so a lot of people just have this perspective like, oh, New York stories or stories in California. But there's just so much more stories outside of America, so much to explore. So I just want non-Malaysians to learn more about our culture and just keep learning. Mm -hmm. Something intriguing also that you mentioned that made me think was that for a lot of people in, in developing countries or underdeveloped countries, and it isn't until they get to America that they realize Oh, maybe there are other stories besides the US. This besides the US, this isn't what I was promised in uh, Princess Diaries. So let me re-spark my interest for learning more about myself. And, and it's an interesting thing of when you're outside of your your homeland or or the place that you grew up in. It's like you you're there, but your heart and like the things that the music that you listen to is from another place, and you constantly seek to be different from the place that you are for the sake of of being unlike the people around you. So I find that super interesting as well. Um, but I want to talk a little bit more about this identity theme um, that is something that is very intriguing for for us. Um, not only in your book, but in the bigger lenses of life and the everyday. So in another interview that you had, you said that you wrote the book to never forget your home country and to share the roots and your culture with the world. For you, what is the importance of remembering one's roots and embracing the cultures of others? Yeah, it's a big lesson that I needed to learn myself. And like you said, after you leave your homeland, you start to get homesick and you 
realize how blessed you are. And uh, I think this happened in my high school senior year in the summer before I was coming to Boston. I decided I needed to spend more time with my grandma. I think I'm very happy I did that. I got to appreciate and I think I wrote down some some scenes or just like put it in my head, not not even realizing that they would later become a book, but I just held on to it for myself and memories. And when I'm in Boston, being an international student is, I think you can also imagine it's quite hard being away from home and sometimes not knowing, not having family there or not finding people who from the same um, culture and you hold on to your identity but you're also still learning from being in America I think you have to learn to be more outspoken you need to have your own opinions and don't be afraid to speak out yeah so I guess I'm just trying to you know just a new identity like a, a mesh of two identities yeah, so that brings me to another question, especially as you mentioned the for example how in the states extroversion is revered everybody wants to be an extrovert because people basically attach extroversion to success here in america which might not be the case in other cultures and other countries are there um other ways that you find yourself adopting western culture and merging it with your roots i feel like i'm saying quite cliche things but like not having a lot of opportunities it's it's still true that america has a lot of opportunities that other countries don't. And so when I'm in America, I'm just, I, I feel this constant need of like nonstop. I need to get, I need to get as many opportunities as I can. And actually when I was writing, so I wrote this book in my sophomore year and in my sophomore year I had, I was in synchro. Yes, this is Barbara. I was in like drama. I was doing the, um, I've had, I had a part-time job. I did volunteering um, with Big Brothers, Big Sisters. And so when this opportunity to write this book came, I actually said no at first because I just, oh, I was also um, taking extra classes because I wanted to graduate early. And so I was just so stressed out and I just wanted to take advantage of being in America that I said no to this book opportunity. I said, can I do this that year when I'm not so uh, busy with extracurricular activities and the head of the publishing program said, I understand, but this opportunity might not come again. And I know you're scared, but you can do it. And your your idea, your book idea should be heard. And I decided to say yes. And so I had to sacrifice. I think that year was also a time to learn maybe more of my priorities and taking time for myself. And I mean, I, I enjoyed sitting in my dorm room and late at night, just writing, 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 and kind of in my own bubble of my imagination and just being back at home, almost. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, and there's so many things I want to say that say to that. The first one is just um, how it's insane also i i i don't want to keep talking about me because it's about you right now <laughs> but just how the um, i i see it also in the people that that are coming into the states uh, from foreign countries and chris can relate to it as well because she she came from haiti when she was young but how this desire of 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 the american dream right and influencing everything that we do and pursuing what others expect of us and and you in your case pursuing that dream that you had how it required you to to make sacrifices you know how 
that applies to so much that we do as well and people listening it's like pursuing our dreams requires us to sacrifice our wants and our hobbies and and success doesn't come for free um it, it literally requires something in exchange and there's one of the things that i appreciate the most about leaving my my community and going to study somewhere else is is meeting other people from other cultures and being excited just by the pure fact that we don't come from the same place right and that goes outside and beyond college as well so talking about that about perspective and about other cultures um what are um some personal biases that you had uh before coming to to study um in the u.s of for example not knowing people from other cultures or understanding their different uh, practice or traditions if any people aren't as open-minded they really don't know much about the rest of the world sometimes and I've had a few situations when okay, okay let me think of a funny story um it's not, not really funny it's, it's funny that when I look back at it now but it wasn't funny then I was in this my job and like my part-time job I was with a uh, college of engineering doing a like social media thing and my supervisor said can you uh, work with us over the summer I said, oh, I'm going back home to Malaysia over the summer, but yeah, I'm free. And then she said, oh, do, do you have Wi-Fi back in Malaysia? And so when I related this story to my parents, they told me I should, I should have said, oh, I don't. I have to climb up a coconut tree and try to get the signal, and, and then I'll reply your email. It's like small situations like that. Like they, they're, they're so serious. Like they really... Don't think that we have Wi-Fi. <laughs> It's just, I hope this book can show them that we have Wi-Fi and so much more. <laughs> so much more. And I think that was my one of my favorite aspects of the book is how well you're able to saturate it with Malaysian culture, with the good and also the bad too. And it's so much so that the reader is able to get a glimpse of the the reality um, of Malaysia without ever stepping foot there. And then hopefully as they go through their lives, if they ever meet another Malaysian or if they like it just expands the world, their world a little bit, but they didn't really have to leave their house to be able to do that. And I hope for with with novels like these, with stories like these, that people become more understanding and are able to humble themselves a little bit more as they learn about um, the different cultures and different perspectives. Well, definitely. You said it so well. <laughs> So and I just, I mean, sometimes I, I ponder and it's something that is much more complicated, right, of of these comments or these beliefs that people have um, in our current political climate even worse. So let's not talk about that. But of, I just wonder, like, do people actually, like, uh, like their brains, ignorance is, is, I think, one of the scariest things. Being an immigrant myself, as Barbie mentioned earlier, and being a person of color in general, it's important for our mental health and for our peace to be able to differentiate between ignorance and malice. Is this person saying this because they they want to be rude and they want to be racist or are they saying it out of pure ignorance? And that's not to kind of give an excuse for ignorance, but it's like 
it gives me a little bit more peace of mind because ignorance can be combated with knowledge and with perspectives exactly as you've done in your book. But with malice, it's like you don't want to be wasting your energy on that because there's no space or desire to change. Oh, for sure. Do you struggle with intersectionality within yourself, maybe even uh, when first coming to study in the States? Yeah, yeah. I think something that's on maybe every international student's mind is after I graduate, do I stay in America or wherever you're studying abroad or do I return to my own country? Also, a part of me is afraid that if I'm in America, then I will lose myself even more than being so far away. But if I'm in Malaysia, then I'm afraid I also can't, a, a part of me is afraid that I can't survive because my Malay and my Mandarin has this deteriorated, like Mila in the, in the book has. I'm currently working in this um, international agency. I'm seeing that it's, a part of me is getting hopeful because I see that maybe being in an international workplace in Malaysia so gives me both worlds. So I'm still trying to find a happy place, but I think I'm slowly, slowly finding it and making peace with it. Yeah, that's so relatable. So, so relatable with that happy place because it feels like it's a it's it's on a scale, right? In order for you to be more Malaysian, I don't want to speak for you, but this is what I'm picking up on and it's something mm -hmm. again that I've struggled with. You have to give up a little bit of your American um not comfort, but your American familiarity. Mm -hmm. So it's like if you do one one more of one, you have to sacrifice the other. But I think what your answer portrayed is at the end of the day, it's about your intention. It's about actively saying, I don't want to lose this, lose this part of myself. So I'm going to make the effort to keep it with me. And it's not, it's not always going to be easy. But if that intention is there, then I think it's very hard to lose different parts of yourself. Mm hmm. And constantly doing things to feed both sides, right? Both identities, if you were so to call them. And also just the, the need to recognize that it's not necessary to be either or. You know, yeah. you can be both simultaneously. And that's something that I've, I, it took me a while to figure out um, for myself of, it, it, you, it's, it's not that I'm not, mm -hmm. in my case, like Mexican enough. And it's not that I'm not American enough. It's that I'm yeah. both. And I don't have to choose just to please you and to answer you. Where are you actually from when you're asked? On that note as well. So talking about, about your life more uh, in, in, in BU in Boston. So you're an international student. And when the pandemic exploded, you were greatly impacted by the politics, particularly of closed borders. So tell us more about your experience on, on taking a leave of absence or being unable to come back and, and finish. At first, I was, I was in an off-campus Apartment. So when school went online and dorms were closed, I was still there. I, I felt like I felt fine. I think being in your own apartment, you kind of feel safe in like the little bubble. But then my parents would call and say, and I guess from the outside perspective, and they read the news, they see how terrible America is and all the protests and everything going on. And so they were very worried. And They told me to take a flight home. Like two days, I was a bit skeptical because I felt safe in the apartment and just thinking of taking a flight home, which would you know, felt like was a bigger risk. 
than just sitting in my apartment. But I I took the flight. I had my quarantine for two weeks while still doing online classes. And being back home, at first I, I didn't really like it. I already missed the freedom in Boston or being with friends and not sure when I can see my friends again. But then now, I guess maybe because now I'm outside. Now I see, now I, I have the outside perspective like my parents. I, I'm seeing how Malaysia is safer and I'm so much happier with my, around my family. And I think taking a break, a leave of absence, it's good, and I, I got to um, experience working. Think, just thinking about going back to school, my, my plan, I hope, is to go back to school in January. But right now, it's just strange to think that I'm already experiencing work. I'm already experiencing a real advertising life. And then when I go back to school in January, I'm back to, like, projects with friends, just, like, hoping mm-hmm. to get a job. <laughs> No, it's it's a for sure. time for everyone. I'm intrigued as as to what it's gonna look like for you know the views of America in general after the pandemic. You know, because like you said, it's like I'm much better right now in Malaysia than men in the U.S. So now <laughs> the U.S. is like the country yeah. you don't want to be in, um, but that's only because it's a global pandemic. What's it gonna be like afterwards? You know, or after the elections? There's just so yeah. many things going on. The last few questions that we want to ask you are are focused questions that we ask all of our guests. And uh, these are short answers. So the first one is, what is one habit that keeps you goal-oriented or focused on your goal? I don't, I haven't, I haven't really been doing it as much, but back in school, or every night, I make a list of, I make a to-do list of my goals, basically of what goals I needed to accomplish tomorrow. Like tonight, I might do a list and saying tomorrow I need to edit chapter one. And tomorrow, or I'll have a list that says, um, I don't know, post about the refocus podcast or um, exercise. Yeah, I think that's my habit. I need to make a to-do list the day before so I can remind myself tomorrow what I need, what needs to get done. Yeah, I love that. I try that um, sometimes too. And it's so helpful because then we have preset actions that we say, okay, at this time I'm going to do this. And it's, it's very helpful. Um, that's basically all I want to say. Uh, for the next question, we at Refocus, we try to highlight five of the eight dimensions of wellness. So that's spiritual, physical, social, emotional, and I always forget one, Barbie, every time. Um, mental. You said, you mental? Okay, I guess it's mental. Yeah, I don't think it's mental. <laughs> okay, mental. So, which one of which of those five dimensions do you find that you have the most challenges with? Um, I think right now I have I have two. I think it's physical and mental. Physical because I think back in quarantine, like I I miss the pool. I I. And now, like, being stuck at home was a bit of a struggle. And trying to find, like, YouTube workouts that could get my, lift, lift my spirits up. But second, I think now when, um, right now, the pool is open because it's uh, salt water, which is a bit safer. Now it's uh, mental. 
maybe it's because I'm experiencing like a work life. It's a bit hard to balance everything that I want. I still, it's like in the day I will work and at night I'll try to write and do my own things, which is hard to balance out. So mental is something I'm working on. And our last question for today is what has been keeping your attention lately? Do you have any example? Of, of course. What has been my, I'll answer the question <laughs> myself. I love that. What has been my, what's keeping my attention lately? I think my, my, the first things that come to my mind are news related stuff. Um, which I don't want it to be <laughs> because that just always bombards <laughs> us and we eventually drown until we get fed up. Um, but keeping my attention lately is just how to do things daily that are, are, are helping me get towards where I want to be in long term. So I'm currently working a lot of music stuff. So how, what am I doing every day that is helping me get there? That is what is keeping my attention lately. What about you, Chris? What about me? Well, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do for the rest of my life, as I'm sure you guys can relate to. <laughs> A um, lot of pressure. Wow. <laughs> yeah, she didn't say so, tomorrow. She yeah. said the rest of her life. <laughs> um, but I, I recently <laughs> read a book that really emphasized focusing on the next step and not worrying about, you know, step 17 or step 27. And so what I've been trying to do is expand my toolkit, expand my interests, and I'm hoping that naturally um, I will find what really calls out to me and I'll be able to follow that path. Preach. I once I was once with a professor uh, having a conversation and, and they said the words of you, you can't make the best decisions for the rest of your life, but the next best decision is the best one for you. You know, so exactly what you said of we're pressured with the way you just phrase the question of course of making the decisions for the rest of your life when in reality you can only make the best decision for today or for tomorrow or for what you're going to eat and what you're going to do later today and then what you're going to do tomorrow maybe next week but not for the rest of your life <laughs> exactly and i think the i'm trying to um reframe the way I think about it because I, I especially after graduating college it was such a, a big ball of stress you know what's gonna happen like I need to figure it out immediately or I, I'm gonna I'm gonna waste time or I'm gonna do this but now I'm trying to reframe the way that I look at it because now I'm seeing that it's exciting. Anything could happen. And there's so many things in store for you that you would never expect. So that keeps me very, very, like, like you mentioned before, that keeps my spirits really high because it's just such an exciting, there are ups and downs, but I will never get bored, basically. Um, there's always going to be something new around the corner. Okay. Hmm. So... Because House of Koi was from this publishing program, it's a mix of self-publishing, but with the support of a real publishing house, but you get to own all the rights. And so I think right now, with the next book, I really want to find an agent. I really want to keep pushing how far I can go with uh, this current book and the next book. I think just being more of a, a legitimate author like a being 
Okay, maybe that's the, that's the wrong word. I just want to get into the field more and get to know the editor and get to know more publishing houses. Yeah, fingers crossed seeing what's going to happen next. That's awesome. If anybody's listening and you have connections to some editors, to some agents, hook up our girl, Lillian, okay? Uh-huh. Um, she's amazing. Yeah. And she's awesome. And on that note, we'll end the conversation. Thank you so much, Lillian, for being here and for sharing your critical and much-needed voice and message with the world. I don't know about you all, but I, I feel extremely inspired to start my week after this chat, um, to start really pursuing what what I want to do, pursuing my dreams, just as you've done, Lillian. Um, thank you again. You're listening to Refocus. We hope to have you again here soon with your the release of your next book. Um, cheers. And we have not said this before, but buy the book, read the book. On Amazon, House of Koi, Lillian Lee. It's on Amazon and it is worth your read. We'll have the link on our socials as well. Well, thanks, guys. Do you struggle with intent? Wow, guys, I cannot say the word this morning. Let me try it. The third was a charm. Ready?